0: Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a weekly podcast bringing readers and writers of Australian fiction together. I'm Claudine Tenellis. As an avid reader and passionate advocate for Australian fiction, I make it my mission to spotlight local talent. So if you're looking for your next read or simply want to learn more about the Australian literary scene, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax. Carly Lane is the author of a whopping 19 novels set in rural Australia. Titles like Once Burnt, Twice Shy, Take Me Home, and Return to Stringy Bark Creek are just some of the books that have made Carly a best selling author and a household name. Her newest novel, A Stone's Throw Away, was released by Ellen and Unwin earlier this year. And listeners, I have to tell you, I thoroughly enjoyed this book. Small Town Secrets, A Writer Suffering Writer's Block and A Handsome Detective Make for a Gripping and Pulse Racing Read. I'm so excited to welcome Carly to the podcast today. Hi, Carly. Hello. Thank you for having me. My goodness, 19 novels. Do you ever worry that you're going to run out of ideas? (laughs) Only when people ask
1: me this. (laughs) (laughs) yeah no well yeah there has been the old occasion where you know I've sat down to a blank screen and and suddenly it's like oh no I don't know what I'm gonna write but I don't know what it is I do keep quite a few on the go at once so it's kind of good because I usually have something to go on to each time I finish a book and I do sometimes find myself at the moment even working on about two or three different ones going between them so I think that helps me not come across that too often hopefully.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Okay, so thinking about A Stone's Throw Away, where did the idea for this book come from?
1: We'd uh, just come out of that drought just before all the fires happened. And I was just, I don't know, well, I was just thinking like all these water holes and dams and things around the place that were drying up that had never dried up before, you know, because we've had this really horrible drought. And I just sort of crossed my mind, and gee, that would suck if you'd actually hidden a the body there. And now all of a sudden it's, you know, <laughs> first time ever this dam's <laughs> dried up. And it kind of went from there. Yeah. I just thought, oh wow, they find bones in a dam. It kind of went from there. I had to sit and brainstorm it a bit because I really only had that idea. However, the the final scene of the book was actually Um, I had that very early before I'd actually started writing the book so I kind of knew how I wanted it to end but I had no idea who these people were and how I was going to get there so that was um that was pretty interesting
0: Yeah. Sounds fascinating. I love hearing about writer's processes and we can get back onto that subject a little bit later, but I wanted to say Midgey Borough and the neighboring town of Cooper's Creek are, are fictional places, I imagine, but I wondered if they were based on towns that you know, or are they nothing like the places around you?
1: These ones in particular were a little different because I did set this one down in Victoria and it was very loosely set, but I did sort of just have a little poke around and look at some little towns down there, mostly I think most little country towns are very similar in that, you know, the same sort of things make them up. So it was fictional and just based on a few bits and pieces. But yeah, I think they're very relatable to anyone who lives in a small country town.
0: Carly, as I mentioned before we started recording, this is the first of your novels that I've had the privilege of reading, but I'm absolutely hooked a terrific balance between you know small town issues long-held secrets and uncovering the past with a healthy dose of romance and I just loved it Um, (laughs) so for those who haven't read it yet I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about the story.
1: It centers around a woman who is a investigative journalist. So she's she's just been doing this big story and broke this big story about a corrupt politician and had been following that around. And now she's about to write her book about, you know, this politician and put it all out there but she's sort of suffering a little bit from writer's block which is probably related to a lot of this the you know the trauma and stuff she'd gone through before so she goes to her uncle's place to house sit for him while he's off touring her aim is to have some peace and quiet and to just write her book but then you know she happens to stumble upon some bones in a dam when she's being very helpful trying to clear it out for her uncle and she's trying not to be distracted by this new mystery because she's supposed to be writing a book <laughs> but um like when you are distracted, you can't help it. So she ends up, her investigative sort of drive makes her try to figure out what's going on and who, who these bones belong to and she gets very sidetracked. It centers around that, but there is also that backstory of, the Bones, and which wanders off into World War II territory. And there's like a backstory there, which I really loved writing and researching.
0: Carly, I've spoken before on the podcast about the rise of investigative journalism and the very valuable role that these journalists and their stories play in uncovering wrongdoing in the community. And what I thought you did so well in this book was to explore the tension between journalists and and police through PIP and the local Mm -hmm. police in Midjiburra. So Mm. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about this and why it was important to the story.
1: Yeah, like you said, there's got to be a balance. And I think to make it realistic, you need to show a lot of different sides. So I was mainly picturing what would happen in a town like mine. And, you know, anything new that happens is always public interest and gossip and all that sort of stuff plays into things. And I think in general, you do see how there would be a bit of a a line between police and journalists there there's that professional line they can't cross and there's all sorts of implications for you know what gets out and what doesn't get out so it's kind of very delicate i think this relationship that the police and journalists have but also i can see both sides journalists do want to get to the bottom of things and they do want to you know, fight for the underdog and police are still trying to do their job. So that's one of those things that I thought would be really good for the nitty gritty in this story. (laughs) So that's why she sort of had that occupation, I guess, which coincided with the, the mystery as well.
0: It was so easy to see both sides of the coin in this story and you could see what motivated each of them. But there was a definite what I felt was defensiveness on the part of the police in in speaking to Pip, you know, as in mm. uh, you're really not writing a story. <laughs> and she's just like, no, 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 just curious, you know. Yeah. <laughs> there, there was that inherent sort of guard up of mistrust of mm. journalists and and what they're out to do, as in expose police corruption, say, for example.
1: Yeah, and and that was sort of something that ran through the book too. So there was that brewing kind of underlying issue that was sort of going through the book and ultimately it was good to show how that the two could work together it was there and it was pretty good for all the conflict we needed
0: (laughs) yeah absolutely (laughs) so small towns seem to be a place where communities protect their own and Borough is no exception and when Pip starts asking questions about Bert and Molly people aren't very forthcoming are they
1: no I actually came across this not in that way exactly but when I was researching another book and it was based on a real story in my local town it was interesting to see how not secrets but in this case of this other book it was a murder suicide and it was just not talked about because it was back in 1920 so it was just after the first world war and it was interesting how if it wasn't talked about it didn't happen and how that carried through the generations so I kind of thought you know it was an interesting thing to explore with a small community that they do kind of protect the secrets they don't like talking about things that don't involve you know outsiders so this town was very much like that with a lot of the things that were going on particularly if there's a main family that is very prominent in a community a lot of small towns probably not so much now but used to have that one family that owned most of the shops or owned most of the businesses and were very prominent and held lots of positions in town. So that sort of thing is also something that that town felt like it needed to protect.
0: One of the interesting things, I've just thought about this as you were talking, one of the interesting things that one of the characters in your book says is that it's not true history if we leave things out. Obviously, uncovering secrets is one thing, but actually then recording them for posterity Mm. and for future generations to learn about is another thing altogether, isn't it?
1: It is. And I think it's very hard if it's something that's um, personal. In the case of this being a family, there's probably a lot of things that you don't want to reveal about your family if it's not very flattering or it's, you know, not what you want to believe about your family. That makes it a lot harder. But, yeah, I think in general history is very open to interpretation if things are left out. So it's hard to be honest with history if you don't include all the bad bits too.
0: We hinted at it a little bit earlier, but one of the really interesting aspects of this novel was the historical events that you explore in the Japanese invasion of Rabaul during World War II and the tragic fallout of of this event to Australian troops based there. I actually know very little about this Mm. historical event, and I'm now really inspired to learn more. Why was this something you were interested to explore
1: and was it deliberate or accidental? It was kind of accidental. I went in, when I worked out where Bert's history had to be, I sort of had to research where he would have been, what he was doing. And originally I was going to put in the Kokoda Trail part of it, which I had a really good scene written. <laughs> and then as I was reading further with my research, I discovered this whole rebel thing and I just thought, oh, no, this this sort of needs to be in it. And I hadn't heard about it either. I just found it so fascinating. So I had to go back and rewrite his entire army history because nothing fitted the way I had it before and I had to lose the Kokoda Trail scene. But I think it worked better because I really loved including some of this history into Bert's story. And it's a very, oh, it it was horrendous. And I think it's a very important part that if we don't really we haven't really heard much about it. It's important to learn about it. And it's one of those things again that it's not flattering, but it happened. And it, you know, those victims and those people deserve to have their story heard. So I really felt very passionate about including that into the book. To put listeners in the picture,
0: Bert was your main character from the the historical aspect of this story, I mm-hmm. guess. And he went off to war and ended up in Rabao and became a prisoner of war.
1: That's right, yeah. Yeah. So when Rabao was, was captured by the Japanese, they were like a little outstate outpost sort of thing. And nobody, I think, expected the entire Japanese fleet to, you know, converge on this one little place. So there was, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head right now, but they were mainly Australian soldiers there at this post. And They had no hope. They wouldn't send in any reinforcements for them. They basically said, you're on your own. And there were also a lot of civilians, which there were a lot of Australian civilians over there working plantations, owning plantations, whatever. So caught up in all this was women and children and and men and just civilians. So the Japanese um, overran Rabao and took prisoners, but they also killed a lot and there was one part of that story with that family there was a little boy and he was only I can't remember what he was 12 years old or something and they were tried for treason or something they, they thought they were all spies or something and they were all executed and it's just horrendous to think that that sort of thing happened and hundreds and hundreds of soldiers instead of being kept as prisoners were just executed and it was just so sad that that part of history happened I think and I know it happened all through the war and all through a lot of different wars but this really hit home and the fact that I hadn't heard very much about it you know you hear about Kokoda and all those other sorts of things but I hadn't heard about this and I just thought it's just sad to leave that part of history unspoken about. Mm.
0: Yeah and I guess to make the tragedy, even more heartfelt, in this book was that Bert was a prisoner of war for a very long time, and uh, his wife Molly thought him dead for so long. Mm, mm.
1: That's hard to get your head around. Is it every time I write a, a story that's got a, a war sort of background in it? That's the thing that always strikes me. How. Slow the news is to come and how frustrating this lack of technology we depend on now would have been like you just wouldn't have heard for months and months on end. And with this, particularly the prisoner of war thing, so many records weren't kept and stuff. So you could easily be assumed dead. <laughs> and I just, it was horrible thinking, how would your family cope with that news? And then, yeah, you're not dead. <laughs> it's it would open a whole other can of worms then i guess so yeah so much stuff oh we're just so lucky we haven't lived through something like that i think i don't know how those generations coped i really don't
0: yeah and women on farms women like oh, on farms, yep. isolated carrying on in the hope that their husbands mm-hmm. were going to return home one day to them yeah and then that feeling of absolute betrayal i guess mm-hmm. thought their husband had died And in fact, he wasn't dead.
1: It's great for writing, but it really does pull your heartstrings when you're writing it because a lot of it was true. A lot of it happened.
0: Okay. So let's talk about Pip. Pip was a terrific character. She was strong, independent. She knew her mind and she also had incredibly good instincts. But I feel like when we meet her, she feels like her instincts are failing her, that she can't Mm. trust herself. And part of that is due to the fact that she went through this terrible trauma. So I wanted to ask you, Carly, what kind of research did you have to do to get inside Pip's head at this stage of her life?
1: I guess on the outside, you sort of basically just have to put yourself into that. And I guess people could deal with it in a lot of different ways. I guess it depends on your personality and and different things. I did a little bit of light research on PTSD. But basically, I think it just comes down to how would you cope in a situation like that? What would you do? And I think you would question a lot of things about yourself and it would take a long time to trust again. That fear, I think that was the worst thing, learning how to be brave again when you know how fragile that is. Your safety could just be gone in an instant. And I think a lot of people that suffer some sort of trauma would deal with those sorts of things.
0: Going from Pip to this almost idyllic location that she finds herself in, uh, the the property of Rosedale, which belongs to her uncle, and as we meet Pip and we start on her journey, as you said, the landscape was pretty dry. It hadn't been rained for a really long time, mm. but then you know comes
1: drenching rain, <laughs> <laughs> as we have just had not long ago.
0: <laughs> as we've just had, was this something you specifically wanted to explore the extremities of? the weather and the landscape here in Australia. Mm.
1: Oh, definitely. And I think they become a character in a lot of my books anyway, because I don't think you can have rural Australia without the landscape featuring in it, because mm. that's what makes it such a different place. And you have drought and then you have floods, it, you know, or fire in the middle, <laughs> but we skip the fire. It's just, I think they take on a characteristic of themselves, this whole rural landscape. And without it, I don't think you can create that atmosphere of of where they are and what they're doing. Otherwise, they could probably be anywhere. It's a place that's out to kill you, basically. (laughs) It can be beautiful, but, you know, you've got to accept that it's also very dangerous sometimes.
0: Yeah, so there's a scene of flash flooding in this book, which I I just found quite horrendous in its portrayal, really. I mean, it was just
1: so realistic. Have you ever experienced anything like that before? Not been caught in one. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I know there was a lot of it very recently, and I was thinking how horrible that would be that you're just sort of there one minute and this water comes from nowhere, especially after a drought, especially Mm. when there's that much rain. Some of these places with like surrounding mountainsides and that can just erupt out of the blue. And I was thinking how terrifying that would be. And the fact that I wanted that same scene repeated, I think that was important to make it as horrific as possible Mm -hmm. so that it, it was pretty memorable I think it would be horrible to be caught in something like that it would just it would feel like that I think especially when you look at creeks and dams and that they're not crystal clear they're they're muddy and they're dirty and they're full of logs and trees it would be absolutely terrifying to be in that sort of situation,
0: I think it's fair to say that you explore a bit of the woo-woo in this book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> and I love that. Is this a particular interest of yours? Is it? Does it feature in other books?
1: You know, it it does every now and again, and I can't explain it. It is a bit woo-woo. I always laugh to myself because from my very first book, it's like my nana always wants to be included. So there's always not. not always and always, but there's a lot of nanas featured in my books and and grands and things. And I feel like that's always been her sort of saying, I want to be in here, <laughs> you know, because I will start a book that has nothing to do with a grandmother. And suddenly there's one in there and she's usually taking center stage. So it's really quite funny. I've always sort of had that thing. I don't know every now and again, it just happens for some reason, the story just goes that way. Um, it happened in take me home a lot because the actual main character is a ghost but it's sort of not a ghost i don't know it just happens and i do not start out planning it that way but like i said that that final scene came to me very very early before i'd actually done the whole plot of the book. So I kind of suspected there was going to be some woo-woo in there. (laughs) I just didn't realize how much until it just started happening. It just, the story just went that way. And it's just, um, it's funny how it can do that. Do you have any experience with ghosts or spirits? You know, I really don't. And I think, I would freak out if I did. I often wish I could talk to my nana, but I think if she appeared at the end of my bed, I would freak out. And I don't feel like that would set this whole scene at all. I feel like that would go completely wrong. <laughs> And I went to Scotland and all I could think of were these places were all so haunted and, and I just couldn't sleep all night. And I ended up with my you know, head under the blanket all night because I thought if I open my eyes and I see something, I'm going to die. Mm. But I love the thought of it. I love the thought of it not being a scary situation or that it can create that bond because particularly with the grandmother thing, I just had such a close relationship with my nan. And I just think, It would be so lovely to have that connection with someone like that, but I'm just not sure how you control that. So in real life, I'm not so sure, but in my fiction world, I can make it lovely and nice and not scary and everything. So I'm always fascinated by it, but I've never really, I don't think, experienced it at all.
0: Look, obviously this book has a strong police theme, a strong investigative theme. And I wondered if you had to do any particular research around this
1: I did have a few professional people I could contact, which was really great because I would write it in sort of my terms (laughs) and I would send it through and say, help me put the right words here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They would just sort of look through it and recommend different wording or different, you know, technology sort of stuff. And it was good. Basically, I could just get them to make it sound like I knew what I was talking about <laughs> when I had no idea. <laughs> I just know from what I watch on TV. <laughs> Apparently, that's not always how it happens.
0: <laughs> yeah, I have heard that once or twice before. <laughs> yes. Was told that, you know, in no uncertain terms, but um, we fixed it. It's fine. So, Carly, if there was one thing you would like readers
1: to take away from this book, what would it be? That whole journey of getting you, getting yourself back, I guess. I know in a lot of cases, it doesn't always have to be traumatic, but sometimes when you're going through something in life and you just You don't feel like yourself anymore and trying to just recapture yourself again Mm. and believe in what you're doing. I guess that was a big theme because I really needed Pip to find herself again and and she did eventually. (laughs) But I think there's still just that connection with that sort of old time romance that it was special back then, I think, but it can still be a modern version of it nowadays too. But that was sort of a very special thing to me writing that that whole backstory and their their relationship Carly
0: as the author of 19 novels I wondered did you always want to be a writer
1: I never thought I would be I I did write when I was a kid I used to write stories and stuff but mostly I used to just use my imagination we used to do a lot of long car trips and I would be stuck in the middle because my two brothers would fight so I'd have to be like the thing to break them up And it was so boring because you didn't really have a window to look out. So I used to go to my happy place and, you know, make up stories in my head. So I think that was probably my main background of escapism. I loved writing. I wrote when I decided I couldn't sort of find anything I wanted to read anymore and then realized it wasn't as easy as I thought. And it took a long time fumbling around before the internet days, you know, trying to find out how to do things. So it was a very slow process. I'd sort of start doing something and put it away and flounder around for a bit. Eventually down the track, I decided I really wanted, I'd I'd written a full book and felt that this is pretty good. And I think at one stage there, I just thought, I want to do this. I'm going to see my book on a shelf. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but that's what I want to do. So I went at it from that sort of angle and I didn't really understand any of it. And I didn't know what would happen after it got accepted. <laughs> I had no plan after that. It took a long time. It probably took about 12 or 13 years, I guess, down the track from when I first started dabbling to trying to figure out what to do and then actually getting you know something published. So no one was more surprised, I got to say, than I was. I've just been very, very lucky that my publishers just so awesome. They they keep publishing my books, so I'll just keep writing them. <laughs> what was your
0: journey to publication like? Was it the one manuscript you'd written multiple manuscripts you'd been
1: submitting for a long time? How did that work out? Well, at the time before the before the internet issue, mm-hmm. I used to devour Mills and Boone by the oh, by the plastic bag full. Uh, you know, they'd be <laughs> 20 cents at the secondhand store and I'd just, you know, devour these books. And I kind of, I wrote away and got the how to do it, how to write a book for Mills and Boone. And that was sort of what I was basing myself on because that's the only thing I knew. And once we got the internet and it was a a lot more information out there, I actually joined Australian Romance Writers. They were pretty new back then. And that was helpful. There was competitions and there was different things. And and that sort of started giving me a little bit more direction. And then when I really decided to tackle it, probably, I don't know, three or four years later, I had gone to a conference. I started listening to what the publishers were saying. And that's where I got into it. And I'd written a series of romantic suspense, which involved a military sort of thing, which was what I was loved reading back then. But there was no market for it in Australia after I went to a conference and realised. Uh, so I just sort of went home with all this, you know, energy and stuff from this conference and and sat down to a blank page and just thought, you know, write what you know. And I'd I'd recently moved mm-hmm. from Townsville back to here, where I live now on the Mid North Coast, with my three kids recently divorced. So I just started writing and I didn't know really what I was writing, but apparently it was rural fiction (laughs) because (laughs) it was set in a small town and, and that's what was actually just opening up. Publishers were looking for rural fiction at the time and it fell into that category, which I was very lucky for. And I sent it in and it, it sort of got accepted on the proviso that I went back and rewrote it, <laughs> which was no small feat, but ended up doing that and had it from two points of view down to one, which was tricky. And we went from there. I had that published by Ellen and Unwin, and it just has been published ever since, so that's really good. Carly, so you might know that there are a lot of writers who listen to this podcast
0: and based on all of your experiences over your 19 novels, <laughs> I wondered if you had any tips to offer aspiring authors out there. I
1: think the hardest thing to do as a writer is learning the craft. It's like you can read a thousand books and there are so many out there and I probably own all of them, <laughs> hoping that it'll tell me how to do it properly. <laughs> but I still find that you just got to do it the way that suits you. And I mean, I'm the most unorganized person. I basically don't plot anything or plan anything. I just write. And yet other people will meticulously sit there and, and write out cards and, and plot it down to the last thing. But it's just going to depend on what, what suits you. And I think you've got to play around with it at the beginning and figure it out and then just do what works for you and, and keep doing it. When you finished one book, don't stop. You know, you've got to just keep going because the more you write, the better it gets. It's, it's one of those, you've got to, learn it <laughs> like mm. by doing it. I feel, I find anyway, I didn't really do any courses or anything in it, but I think it's just a case of just keep writing and it just gets better. You have written a
0: women's fiction title, which you've self-published. Can you mm. tell me a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. Well, when I wrote Take Me Home with Eleanor, when it was our first little venture into a more women's fiction type line, because I'd been to Scotland and I came home and I I said to my publisher, I really want to write a book about Scotland and, but I don't know how to make that rural fiction. (laughs) So (laughs) I sort of fumbled around and it turned out it was rural fiction anyway, because even in Scotland, they have farms and there was a farmer in my book. So that was all cool, but it was very much more the journey of the main character in that book. That was a little bit different to what my, my usual books are. So, and it wasn't as focused on the romance that sort of happened at the end. So my publisher said, yeah, that's fine. We can probably, you know, if you want to, we can do a women's fiction in May and then your rule fiction in December or something. So I sat down to write a second women's fiction and had absolutely no idea what I was going to write. And I started off thinking I'll write a family sort of saga, but it quickly, quickly took a very (laughs) sharp turn away from anything that was remotely what I'd written before. And it, it kind of ended up a little bit of a rom com, a little bit of a women's fiction, a little bit of a suspense, even in there. Ooh. It's just a bit crazy. I started throwing in everything and then submitted it to my publisher and it was turned down because it was like, What the hell are you doing? <laughs> what the hell is this? What do you want us to do with this? <laughs> and I sort of thought, oh, <laughs> oh, that's that's sad because that was my next book. So then I had to sit down and quickly write another book for that one, which luckily I could do. But meanwhile I had this book sitting there that they weren't sure how to market it, basically. So instead of sort of just letting it sit there, I decided, well, I'm going to self-publish it because I can't stand the thought of a book just sitting there doing nothing. So I did. And it, it was a really fun book to write, but it, it still has, I think, uh, a heart to it. It's just that it's nothing like any of my rules. It's, you know, a family that's mega wealthy there. And it's along the lines of, The new idea scandals with the royal family, they were always being caught in something and they were a very prominent, rich family. And the grand has had enough of this family doing this to her. That you know, the youngest generation are putting the name through the mud. So she cuts them off and they have no clue how to survive because they've just always had money given to them and living this society life. The youngest grandkid gets given a life raft basically. And the grand says, you come back and work for the, the company under a new name and don't use your your title to get any you know any favours, work your way up and she'll get her inheritance back. So she does that. And it's just her way of basically being shocked into working class. (laughs) And, yeah, she figures out a few things along the way and doesn't become as brattish as she was. And it's just, yeah, it was just a nice, fun story to write with, yeah, hopefully a message of we can all be better people (laughs) without money, although it helps if you have money. (laughs) indeed it does
0: so the title of that book is accidentally working class it is yes and where could listeners find that book if they were interested in
1: buying it it's on print and ebook through amazon and and all the online bookshops i think it's also on my website i've got signed copies i can get from there if you like a bit of a light read it's probably good for that hopefully
0: (laughs) oh fantastic If listeners wanted to learn more about you and your books, where can they find you?
1: I'm always on Facebook, a little (laughs) bit too much, (laughs) always there. (laughs) I do try to update my website, mainly Facebook, Instagram, Carly Lane Author. Come over there if you want to be inundated with photos of my horses, my grandkids, my chooks, my guinea fowl, (laughs) sometimes my books,
0: (laughs) occasionally. <laughs> you're so busy. I don't know how you have time to write books.
1: I know it is. It's a very busy, very busy life. But I, yes, I do manage to squeeze them in there somewhere. You
0: certainly do. So, Carly, you're going to be one of our authors at the inaugural Northern Beaches Readers Festival. We're so excited to be welcoming oh, you to that exciting event. I in the new
1: wait, I know, and it's oh, it was so disappointing. It's been put off, and you poor people trying to organise it. Oh my goodness! No, I can't wait. It'll be lovely
0: has been a bit of a journey, but we are confident that the festival will go ahead this
1: year. (laughs) Yes, it will. (laughs) Yes, she says with determination. Yes, we will all turn up regardless. (laughs) That's hilarious. So, Carly, are you working on something else at the moment? The December book's already in the pipeline well and truly. I think it's gone off to typesetting already. It's another rule. I've got another three on the go at the moment, because I can't decide which one I want to do next. So I just do more. (laughs) But um, mind you, I would have had a book finished by now if I just worked on one, but we'd like to spread it out over, you know, a few different titles. There's lots more on the way. I
0: just wanted to say that I thoroughly enjoyed reading A Stone's Throw Away. I'm going to go back through your backlist now and just pluck <laughs> out all all the interesting sounding titles that I'm going to
1: pile up behind me. But I'll feel privileged to be on your to, read, to be read pile. <laughs> oh, you're such a sweetheart.
0: Thank you so very much, Carly. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you today. And uh, thank you for joining me on Talking Aussie Books. Oh, thank you for having me. That's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please drop me a line via my webpage at Claudia com via Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Alternatively, consider leaving a
1: review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Until next time, happy reading.